We recently launched Liberation Martial Arts Online for trainers, collectives, and individuals that were looking for a program to follow that was chut-free or perhaps one that came directly from us. Thanks to Mark Katz, Zachary Dakery Doc, and Rita Kapadia for signing up. If you would like to sign up for Liberation Martial Arts Online or you just want to increase your financial support, you can find special tiers on our Patreon. If you'd like to listen to all of our shows without any breaks, or interruptions, you can find uncut versions of our shows also on Patreon. This is Sam. This is Jason. And this is Fight Study. Coach Jason and I are back with another edition of Fight Study. We're coming to you on the 4th of July after another mass shooting. So, you know, business as usual. This is consistent from its founding. What else is there to say, really? But let's talk about some MMA. We're going to look at UFC 276 and then preview a fight I'm looking forward to more than I did Adesanya versus Kanir, which is Rafael versus Rafael. Anjos versus Fiziv. To help us break down these striking heavy fights, we're joined by the Southpaw Muay Thai correspondent, Ron King III. Welcome back, Ron. Happy to be back, man. Ron, can I call you RK3? That is so funny. You know what's funny that you say that? That was my nickname when I wrestled in high school. Seriously. Was it really? (laughs) Yeah, it was. Nah, seriously. That That's my nickname when I wrestled in high school, RK3. That was my old username for everything, too. (laughs) Nice. So let's talk about the people's main event first, which was Alexander the Great Volkanovsky versus Max Holloway 3. Volkanovsky's nickname was sort of a corny but obvious play on words at first, but boy is he living up to that nickname now. That evolution is something you only see in anime or movie training montages. And it's getting to the point where it's hard to watch his fights because he is that dominant. It's like you might need a mercy rule just for this guy. So let's first start with you, Ron. How did their neck-and-neck rivalry become such a lopsided win for Volkanovski? Where did Volkanovski get better, and what did Holloway do wrong? You know, honestly, I feel like it's less to do with anything that Holloway did wrong in particular, and more just so how fast Volkanovski is improving, and just how fast he's become in general, like physically as well, because I've never seen Max Holloway just get pieced up that badly. And like you mentioned earlier, that was hard to watch because I actually really do like Max Holloway. I've always enjoyed his fighting style, even as like, as especially as like a Muay Thai purist and like watching Volkanovsky just tear him apart like that for basically the entire fight. I didn't, you know, during the uh, buildup to the fight, I was super excited. I'm thinking, you know, like this should have been a main event fight. Let me be very clear about this. This should have been the main event. This was the main event, in my opinion. And, you know, (laughs) seeing how lopsided it got that fast really made me reassess what I originally thought about how good Volkanovski is able to become, especially if he moves up in weight class, because I don't really see anybody at 145 for him. If Max Holloway got beat up that bad, you know, any other person at 145, that wouldn't have happened to him. I truly believe that. And 
it's to the point now where now I'm looking at the uh, the Korean zombie fight and the Brian Ortega fight where it's like it, basically the same thing happened. So is he just that much better than everybody? It's starting to look that way just from what I can just from what I can see based on recent progressions. You know, it's just it's astonishing to watch in real time too, just how fast despite his age, just how fast he's learning. He's adapting. His reflexes are getting better despite his age, actually. And because he slimmed down, you've got a guy who used to walk around at 200 pounds carrying around the power of somebody who used to carry that weight legitimately as an athlete. And some, and he also has the speed that's equivalent to flyweights, guys who walk around at 125, 135 pounds, which creates a nightmare matchup for anybody at featherweight, basically, in my opinion. Jason, in our preview, we said, what is there to change other than to do more of the same things you found success in? And I mentioned the thing that gave me the most pause, which was they both got better, but where Volkanovski got better in a variety of ways, Max improved in one area, which was boxing. And it ended up with both doing the things they found previous success in, except Volkanovski found way more success. Now, going back to what Ron said, Holloway made all the changes you would want him to make. It actually was the perfect game plan of leading, scoring points, not overcommitting, mixing in kicks and clinches and so forth. I give his team an A+. But I think about what you and Zach said in our last episode where you said, even if you do everything perfect, sometimes you're so outmatched, it doesn't matter. It's not about you. It's them. So Jason, tell me about Volkanovsky. How did he go from being one of the two best in the division to being in a class all by himself? Well, I, I think... Volkanovski has an outstanding fight IQ and without a doubt he's committed to being a better version of himself every fight even as world champion and that's why he's become world champion and and now the clear-cut best fighter in the world in my opinion and it's that that commitment to improving and that's it's it's some fighters once they hit a certain level of success have become a little less coachable because they know a lot themselves but you always want a coach's eye so you have an individual who is like immensely physically talented, has a lot of intangibles, but the physical intangibles like vision uh, and reflexes to, to Ron's point. Um, you know, and if you look at a, a fighter who like is good at hand traps and, and, and baiting some, some high level stuff, all of a sudden develop a good jab, like Volkanovsky's jab and the speed of his jab was fucking bonkers this fight especially against max holloway who's got an excellent jab and a great counter right hand if you get lazy with it but he, he you know, employed that tactic for much of the fight and he used it brilliantly so his his adaptability his continuation of learning on the job is a testament to himself as a student of the game and and a competitor and i think that's why he's the best fighter in the world ron what were some clever tactical things you saw from either fighter? Well, I'm going to piggyback off of what Jason said. And like the whole fight, I'm just watching Volkanovsky's jab the whole fight because that was what that was really the main thing that stood out to me. Just the fact that he basically just shut down a lot of the volume striking that Max Holloway would have done to pretty much anybody else in that division with that jab and uh one thing i actually said it on twitter that i don't think a lot of people take into account is that volkanovsky he's five six 
you know, based on the way athletes overestimate their height, he probably might really be five five. And he has a 71 and a half inch reach, probably 72 two inch reach. And basically he has arms that are equivalent to somebody who's like five foot 11 or six feet tall. So even with the height disadvantage he has against a lot of his opponents, even at featherweight, because he knows how to, he usually is training with people taller than him. I mean, I saw a video of him sparring with Izzy like last week and even, you know, Israel Adesanya, the professional, the former professional kickboxer had a difficult time really being able to tee off on Volkanovsky, which goes to show how intelligent and how refined his jab has become, especially just in the last handful of his fights alone. I think that really threw Holloway off because I think the game plan for Volkanovsky, where they assumed he would be throwing a lot of leg kicks like he has in their previous two fights. But Volkanovsky really didn't throw that many. It was more like Holloway was throwing it. And it became Volkanovsky who was the jabber, except he had a much more devastating jab than Holloway. And it wasn't just a jab. He built off the jab. So it was almost like he was doing to Holloway what Holloway normally does to other people, except even better if possible. One of the, th- the reasons why you didn't see a ton of leg kicks, especially in the first round from Volkanovski, is like Max Holloway's adjustment was really was really smart. His camp had him come in with that little Muay Thai lift. He lifted his his lead leg and that little little skip step coming in. He even tried to start off with what looked like a front a front leg deep um, to establish that concern or consideration. But um, when you're dealing with someone like we said with with that kind of reflexes and that kind of like, those physical advantage advantages it's, it's really hard to get like Volkanovsky flinching you know and so Volkanovsky didn't hunt those leg kicks when the leg wasn't there or vulnerable and uh, they did a good job of adjusting Max Holloway's stance and trying to take that away so he said fuck it if a leg kick isn't there I'm going to draw out the jab with my own jab jab with the jab or keep putting it on him and I don't know if that was Volkanovsky adapting on the fly or if that was part of their game plan but he did it brilliantly, and I would have thought that he would have used that to bait some other stuff out. But he was having so much success with it that I would have thought, you know, in a, in a jab fest, you're probably going to pick the five eleven Holloway all day, every day, you know. And it's just not—it's just not me lying on my Bumble profile about my height. Like all fighters do, they do. Yeah. That <laughs> so like, he's probably five five, but he has those long arms and he has that speed and ability to make up that distance. And in the, in the timing factor, again, those are some things where like, you can have all the goods, but if you don't have that timing and the confidence in that timing and the, the commitment to the strength and conditioning to have the cardio to support that, like, that you become incomplete. And Volkanovski is, at, at least as long as the UFC has been in, in existence, the most complete fighter I've ever seen. Jason, we know how good Volkanovski is technically. But how much of his success is also because he has unparalleled physical gifts for the division? Well, see, that's that's an outstanding question for sure. Because speed and speed and reflexes are required for the featherweight division. You know, they they just are. But he's so so good that if it's only a marginal slowdown, he can still be very competitive and among the top five in the world. Just because he is head and shoulders above everybody else at this point. Like, again, he he is. Uh, a very physically strong individual and if he wanted to like what do we i call it wall some people say wall install or i call it wall and brawl if you if you got any 
skills inside. You could throw some elbows off some of those pummel positions against the cage. But if Alexander Volkanovsky lost a step, everyone else would still be two steps fucking behind. Like that's how good he <laughs> is right now. So they're gonna he's gonna have to lose two or three steps and then it'll get real competitive in the top ten. Ron, do you see any vulnerabilities in Volkanovsky's style? You know, every fighter, even at the highest level, has vulnerabilities. But especially with Volkanovsky currently right now, yeah, he's got some vulnerabilities. But if Max Holloway couldn't even exploit them, then it's it's now a matter of like, yeah, he has them. But are you good enough and are you fast enough and are you conditioned enough to really exploit them? That's really the main question. Because even where I thought he was vulnerable getting caught on the inside and getting peppered with just combinations, which Max Holloway usually does on the inside, the inside was where he was fucking Max Holloway up the most. He was like messing him <laughs> up the most on the inside because everything he landed, like I was watching, I was rewatching the fight this morning again. And even on the slow-mo, like every time he got inside or slipped or blocked something, he came back with at least two to three more clean shots that hit directly on the face. It even led to like Max getting cut pretty early on in the fight. And that cut was all, also, that cut was really bad. Like, I'm shocked they didn't stop it, but I can see why. But even in like a pure Muay Thai fight, that cut, that cut where it was at probably would have gotten stopped even in a pro Muay Thai fight just because of where it was at. And that was early in the fight. So this wasn't even like later on in the fight. And he was keying off on Max that, that quick and early. And how often do we see a cut like that from a punch? I don't even yes. remember the last <laughs> yes. time I've seen a cut like that from a punch. That says something about Volkanovski. You're goddamn right it does. I mean, he's like it, his face parted like the red fucking sea. That's from a, from a punch, from a punch, from a normal punch from from a 145-pound man, or at least 145 pounds the day before. And normally the, the facial structure doesn't do that when punched. So that, that says something about it. Volkanovski is that rare breed of power, speed, cardio and volume so he's a stylistic matchup no matter what your fucking style so like unless you come up with a cheat code you got got a tall task in front of you if he's five foot six and then alexander volkanovsky and after uh what jason said last week of like yeah if the ufc offered somebody to take on like me or one of my fighters for like you know a quarter meal after this past weekend, honestly, you can pay me a million to fight that dude, to be honest. <laughs> like, cause, because of the damage that Holloway took, I don't even think it's worth it. Because yeah, it seems like every time he fights somebody, the trajectory of their careers just changed completely. You know? He beats you down. He beats you down. And like, unless, like, all the credit to, to Max Holloway, because, I mean, I don't know, like, did, did Kasparov, beat deep blue or whatever but if if you're talking about fight iq like volkanovsky is the supercomputer and fucking max holloway is kasparov i mean super high level super good decision maker great with volume and has the ability to, to mix in punches kicks we're talking about outstanding versus outstanding and then you see what volkanovsky was able to do after two fights taking in that information and it's another example where i don't think uh, I don't think Holloway slowed down. I still think he looked pretty good. I think his camp made some really good choices in how they decided to fight. It just didn't work out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jason, what did you think about Volkanovsky's defense? I really enjoy Volkanovsky's defense because he's 
so good at using feints and an educated jab along with footwork as part of his defense. You know, we, we, you and I discussed before, Sam, about like how some fighters tend to over parry. We can talk about Sean Strickland and his ridiculousness, but the, uh, a parry is part of a layered defense. You just don't keep swatting at a hand coming at your face. The Volkanovski can swat at that hand, touch, and then counter jab. He can slide off, shift forward, hit you with a, a right hook, or throw a right hand and walk in and find that right hook left straight, and then just press you against the cage before you can get up any counter offense. So part of that layered attack, that layered approach, is is part of his his defense, you know. And when you work when you work, um, the use of uh, a little drop step, or I call it a six inch drop, and you saw you saw Volkanovski use that throughout the fight. He would throw his jab, then he would bring his jab hand back down low, like at his hip, so that he would have better balance and mobility, and he would retreat like six inches or a foot, and it didn't allow Holloway to counter strike at all. And actually threw a monkey wrench in Halloway's game plan because Halloway was starting off with a lot of feints of his own and was hoping to draw out some leads and then counter strike. But, you know, Volkanovski put an end to that with a nice jab and a six inch drop. And he used that throughout the entire fight. So all part of a layered defensive uh, consideration. And it made him, you know, more dominant than we've ever seen. And uh, it, Still incredibly hard to hit. And it makes you realize that maybe, and I saw this and I, I, I don't know who to give credit to, but someone said, maybe we owe uh, the Korean zombie an apology. I think we <laughs> fucking might. Yeah. We might, right? Yeah. 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 He's not washed. He just fought Alexander Volkanovsky. That's, <laughs> That's really all. In hindsight, it's like, what did we think would happen when somebody who's not Max Holloway challenges Volkanovsky? That's what happens. So, I mean, everything. Uh, in context, and it's all relative. So, like, I still think uh, uh, KZ's got some miles on him. I'm sure he watched this fight and was like, oh, okay, maybe I'm not washed. <laughs> yeah, you talk about a little resurgence in your confidence after watching what Volkanovski did. It's pretty impressive stuff, really, to watch. I mean, I know personally I've had fights and matches where I'm like, what the hell? Like, is this my peak? Like, you, you, just, you just beat my ass that bad? And then I go on to see who uh, the future opponents that whoever beat me beats. And I'm like, oh, okay. All right. So I don't suck. He's just that good. All right. That, that makes me feel a little bit better. <laughs> Sometimes it's not you, it's them. And uh, anyone that's not Max Holloway and even Max Holloway now realizes that um, it's Alexander Volkanovsky. My own observations were Holloway couldn't keep up with Volkanovsky's speed changes, his lateral movement and Volkanovski's change-ups from going first and third to second and fourth. Also, Holloway's boxing stance, which sort of looked like Aljamain Sterling's, where he was standing long but square and leaning forward, just left him open to Volkanovski's jabs and elbows. Volkanovski has a height and reach disadvantage, but Holloway's stance actually negated that. But I understand why Holloway did it, because he wanted to touch Volkanovski. Also, Holloway was so hyper fixated on looking at Volkanovsky's head. If you look at Holloway's eyes, he's so serious. He's so focused. Instead of when we see Holloway at his best, where he's kind of having fun and he's flowing, he's just so committed to the task. And maybe this was because of Volkanovsky's taunts. But because of that, 
because of where his eye line was, he couldn't see what was coming from below, like up jabs and uppercuts. Whenever Volkanovski dropped his hand low, Holloway's gaze didn't drop with it. He just kept looking straight ahead. So when the jab came up, Holloway just couldn't see it. It came from below his eye line. When the shorter man, Volkanovski, would throw an uppercut, Volkanovski couldn't see it. And the fucked up part was, in their previous fights, it was Holloway who was having success with uppercuts because Volkanovski was the shorter guy and was coming in really low. But this time, it was Holloway almost coming in a little bit too low and crouched. So a lot of that had to have been in-fight adjustments by Volkanovski because Volkanovski couldn't have known those were the adjustments that Holloway was going to make. So I think Jason brought this up, but after round one, right, you saw a different game plan. Not completely different, but from Volkanovski, you saw these adjustments. So that's why round one looked like it could have gone either way. And then the rest of it was Volkanovski running away with it. And you saw his accuracy keep going up and his volume keep going up as the rounds continued because he had made those adjustments and made those reads. And I'm sure Volkanovski had even more adjustments he could have made in his back pocket, but he realized, no, I only need to make two adjustments to beat the shit out of this guy. This guy isn't even challenging enough for me to make three or four adjustments. That's how much better Volkanovski was. A note to our loyal listeners. If you love the Southpaw Project, please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on Patreon. This will give you access to exclusive bonus content, as well as our private chat group on Discord. Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. The way he used his jab was, it, it seemed it seemed sort of regimented, in, but it is actually quite complex. It seems regimented and formulaic, but he, he's quite complex in what he's doing where, where he throws that jab um, as a disruptor to the constant feints that were that was uh, being implemented by Holloway to draw out those counters. So like he can take something that is simple and formulaic and build in complexity because the way his fight mind works. And I don't know if his coaches have, are like all watching or have earpieces in and they have like eight, eight like fight geniuses watching the fight <laughs> on pay-per-view and then they're like texting and calling them into their earpiece and telling them what they fucking see. Or is Volkanovski just that kind of a natural talent to be able to, to make those in-fight decisions? Because it honestly looked like, I don't know, it looked like the Patriots dynasty at their best when they were just beating everybody with, with like, uh, I don't know, depending on, on who they had on the field. It didn't matter. Their decision making showed that they were one step ahead. And that's sort of what I felt like we were watching. It was just really, really impressive shit when you, especially if you know how good Max Holloway is, you know, his entire body of work. And I think that's the, without a doubt, that's the story of the, of the fight. Now let's talk about Israel Adesanya versus Jared Cannonier. Do we have to? <laughs> um, I kid, I kid, I kid. To that point, what's somewhat become a trademark of Adesanya's fights is his entrances are sometimes better than his fights. <laughs> and with both him and Volkanovsky on the same card, I feel like Volkanovsky really came out of Adesanya's shadow and proved, at least to us hardcores, that he is the best fighter from that region. It's not that Volkanovsky takes more risks. It's that Volkanovsky can do things Adesanya can't 
without leaving himself vulnerable. Volkanovsky can be offensive while defensive, whereas Adesanya still can mostly do one or the other and really needs to set things up for a long time before he can get his offense going, meaning he is very good, but not so much better where he can style on people like Volkanovsky can. And Volkanovsky is in the tougher division. And to your question, Jason, about fight geniuses calculating with each other on Volkanovsky's team, I think Adesanya proved that there is no such thing. It's really Alex, because even though Volkanovsky has his own camp in Australia, they do a lot of co-training with city kickboxing, and city kickboxing people are also in his corner, and they do a lot of mutual exchange of information, right? So let's just say, to make it simple, they basically have the same team, and you saw two different results. That difference is Volkanovsky. Well, for, for and to your point, where Adesanya always seems to toe the company line, and I got $3 million in the bank, uh, you sure as fuck fight like they don't pay you enough to get hit, right? <laughs> That's how you <laughs> fight, bro. I'm just saying, like, you, you can talk that shit, but hey, man, like, I, I know you want to you wanna suck up and toe the company line. I get it. But, like, you fight like they don't pay you very well. I feel the same way about Adesanya just because it's like he he's interesting to me, mainly because, like you mentioned, he's trying to become this UFC company man, even though Dana White doesn't fucking like you, dude. Like, I don't know. Like, that's really like my like what confuses me. He's like, dude, he does not like you. Why do you think he gave an unranked fighter the number four contender who he knew he was going to knock out? despite it seeming like he was going to push it early so he could fight you specifically. He doesn't want you to have that belt. So I don't understand why he's even trying to like be this UFC company, man, that they, they don't even want him to be. They don't want him to be the face of the UFC because of all the reasons that you just pointed out. You know Exactly. And I, I, I had this conversation with Sam. Like, I wish, because I like Adesanya as a fighter, and I wish that if you, but I, but I hate the UFC and I hate Dana White, right? Which, if you've listened to any past episode, that's pretty clear. Um, <laughs> so, like, Adesanya lost me when he started trying to curry favor with Dana and the company Brass. So, especially with the crypto shit and that, like, horrible commercial or what I thought it was a meme, for Christ's sake. It was so fucking bad. Sam was like, no, I mean, that's real. Like, I don't think, Sam, I think you're wrong. He's like, no, it's definitely real. Like, all right. It was, just, it was really poorly done. I think they photoshopped the crypto shirt on him. He's like, yeah, that's exactly what they did. And then they just launched it. But I digress. Um, if, if Adesanya was like, hey, man, like, pay me, pay me this. And I'll, I'll, you know, you want some more steam and some more heat, I'll bring it. Then I would, you know, I would defend him, you know, tried and true uh, for taking that stand, but to be simultaneously a company guy and then, be you know fight the 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 what is a relatively lackluster performance um that he took the rare chance in this this if he took any in this fight um and it made it a relative snooze fest and what i thought could have been a you know a barn burner if both parties would have decided to engage and i think that's what we got to also give give some like cannoneer can do more than just push you against the cage too like he's a Anyone who's wrestled knows this. You, sometimes you can wrestle someone pretty close without doing a fucking thing, even if they're a lot better than you. But you don't open up. If you don't open enough, then all of a sudden like, you look like you lost to a, a four-time All-American by four points. But 
really you got dominated for every second of that fight positionally. You just didn't give up any points most of the time. So, I mean, you can get dominated and the score can not necessarily be uh, um, reflective of that. In the lead up to this fight, Adesanya said he was going to show stuff that people had never seen before, which is something we've heard from him a lot, that he is so much better than all these guys, especially he knew he was a favorite over Cannoneer. This is his chance to really show what he can do. I think in the promo he was saying, there's all these moves he's always wanted to try. This is the fight where you're going to see it. You're going to see him styling on Cannoneer because now he finally has an opponent that he could do that to, and he just couldn't do it this time. So I think he might have overestimated himself. We said in the preview, this was going to be an easy fight to pick. But I can't necessarily say that this ended up being an easy fight for Adesanya because he still had to be very conservative and play a points game to win this fight. He clearly won, and it was not close. But with that said, I think the commentators undersold the hard time Cannoneer was giving Adesanya. He did much better than Holloway did, even though Holloway is the far better fighter. So Ron, what was Cannoneer doing that was giving Adesanya a hard time? Because Adesanya was getting hit quite a bit, and it seemed like Adesanya was having a hard time really hurting Cannoneer or getting him to respect his power. Yeah, I think that's really the main thing. I don't think Cannoneer really respected his power. And especially in the later rounds, he started to fight like it. Now, granted, he still, you know, Cannoneer still didn't key off as much because he did understand that, you know, Israel and Asana, there is a huge counter punching threat there if you swing too wild but at the same time in order to really be defensively responsible you got to be a little bit offensive at the same time you can't just stand there and get picked apart by a guy whose whole he's probably like a true just counter striker as far as like i'm gonna lay back here and even if i throw 10 punches this whole fight as long as you get zero to two on me i'm good fuck the crowd even though you know (laughs) he once he he says all these things about like him doing stuff but let's be real israel is just not going to fight that way because that's not the type of fighter he is and he probably knows it himself but he just has to play it up for whatever reason and cannonier was doing you know i kind of wish he did a little bit more in the clinch specifically even though that probably wasn't really a part of his game plan maybe it was i'm not sure but there were a couple times i believe in the fourth and fifth round where he caught Adesanya with like a couple of clean elbows off the break in the clinch, which is something that in general, a lot of MMA fighters would really find you should really find useful. And there's a few fighters who, you know, made a whole name off of throwing elbows off the break in the clinch. But, you know, you don't see it a whole lot. And uh, Cannonier was able to pull it off a couple of times. And the times where he was really like teeing off on Adesanya in the later rounds was when he had Adesanya on the back foot, and he didn't bite on the feints too much, which is something that Adesanya is really good at as far as like getting people. He looks, he looks very pretty. He's a very pretty striker. He's the type of guy, like, for example, if you were to spar Israel Adesanya, even light sparring, you know, you might spend an entire round basically doing nothing because you're just so mesmerized by how he moves, you know, his flexibility is like like the way he like throws punches even though he probably didn't even hit you like once which is something i guess a lot of fighters tend to fall for then he starts making his reads and he tees off then he wins the decision or he catches you in a counter strike and then as Kenton and air 
started to push the pace a little bit more. He started to find more success a little bit. But by the time he started really finding success, the fight was basically over. So we didn't really get to see him build off of that or capitalize on it that, that much. Yeah, that makes me wonder how much of it was Cannonier like having legitimate success or how much was it is he coasting? So that's yeah. sort of hard for me to ask ascertain because at times, I mean, fucking Izzy just looks a little bored in there. I mean, I, again, I think he's one of those guys with an otherworldly worldly skill set, so I don't want to take anything away from him for being, and when I say lackluster, I just mean in terms of entertainment value, which makes me a bit of a hypocrite because I say winning is priority, but you want to be the company man, be the fucking company man, be consistent <laughs> is, my, is my only point. Again, I always take this off topic and make it about Dana White, so I apologize. Jason, did this fight reveal to you any openings in Adesanya's defense? I saw more openings in uh, Izzy's defense when he sparred Volkanovski. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had a tough t- he had a tough time with um, with Volk crushing that distance. And but like you know, um, what you see is that like in order for these these uh, challengers to beat Israel Adesanya, they're going to have to layer their attack. And to layer their attack, they're going to have to be good at multiple things. And what would you say? that uh cannoneers like best skill is i would say his power punching right that's his thing he hits hard and he's durable he's not like one of those glass cannons there's a lot of that people who hit hard but can't be hit hard back yes i think cannonier <laughs> is that person who could hit hard and take a hard shot oh hell yeah he's fucking granite he hits incredibly hard and he can take a shot and I imagine, like, when he checks your kicks, that that hurts. Even when he doesn't check his kicks, his muscles look like fucking stone. Um, so my point is, if if that is your ability, if you are a power puncher and you are durable, then and you're fighting for a world title against a fighter who in Israel Adesanya is, is not really pushing a pace, did he think he was going to sit back and outscore? Adesanya, or did he think he was going to push him against the cage and make it ugly? But he didn't do enough of of that with any true layered attack other than sort of fighting. It seemed like he sort of fought to keep it close. And Adesanya was fine with that because he didn't ever felt any real threat. And you got someone in Cannoneer who can punch and kick. He's a strong, strong man. Well, sometimes you got to go and get in the thick of shit and realize it might get a little messy. And hey, that is your best chance at winning. The problem is it's also your best chance of getting knocked out by Israel Adesanya. But it's the fight game. And I would rather get knocked out or see my athlete get knocked out trying than coast to say I went the distance with, with a champ who actually stopped fighting midway through the third. <laughs> I'll give credit to Cannoneer's camp because they seem like they made some good reads. It's just that Cannoneer wasn't the person to pull it off. It seemed like they saw that there were openings when Adesanya escapes. There's a way that Adesanya often escapes, which is using footwork like Volkanovsky, except not as layered or as good as Volkanovsky, which is he'll L-step back and then just circle away. And Cannoneer, which we just talked about, he's a power puncher. He's not the greatest technical striker, but Cannoneer found success where as Izzy was trying to circle away, Cannoneer would throw a wide hook and catch him a couple of times. And also because Cannonier, he was a heavyweight at one point. So even though he's not super tall, he has a frame that's really large, meaning he's very wide, right? 
So his reach is actually still very much like a heavyweight's. So times that Adesanya tried to lean back, Cannonier found some success. Not enough to win, but enough to tell me that that's something they were working on. And another thing that Ron pointed out were the feints, not to bite on feints. That was also key to Cannonier keeping the fight close. But he bit on them enough where Adesanya still walked away with an easy decision. Ron, as a Muay Thai fighter, what do you think another striker could do to beat Adesanya? Like, what would Alex Pereira have to do to beat Adesanya? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I actually recently took the time to rewatch both of their fight kickboxing matches. And for the audience members who have probably seen like the clip of the second match where Adesanya gets knocked out, that's at most like 15 seconds. To give put it into perspective, to keep it simple, the first match was a win by Alex Pereira, but it really wasn't a win. It was kind of a robbery. Now, a lot of people are now not saying it was a robbery. And these are like comments recently, now that people know who Alex is. But even under kickboxing rules, especially if you turn the volume off, it was a pretty uh, easy Israel Adesanya win. But it's a loss on his record, so whatever. And then the second fight, you know, Israel, considering what happened in the first fight, came out more aggressive, which you won't really use. You, If you watch his kickboxing fights, Similar style, but he's far more aggressive than he is in the UFC, for sure. And he came out more aggressive against Alex Pereira, styling on him the whole fight. Then he gets knocked out near the end of the fight. But he was winning up until that point. And if you were to tell me if they fought kickboxing a third time, who would win? I would probably say Israel Adesanya. If they fought MMA now, I'd probably give it to Pereira. Why? Because with those four-ounce gloves, Pereira's punches... Can are the difference maker, and not only he's not just a power puncher. His setups are sophisticated, and they've actually improved since he even like even though he's not a, a pro kickboxer now, his setups for that left hook that he throws have improved because he's not just head hunting anymore, which is what he did in the previous uh, Adesanya fights. That he even though he won them, he was head hunting a lot in both those fights, even against Strickland, despite all the 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 plethora of mistakes that Strickland made, <laughs> you know, Pereira kept a pretty technical strategy. And if you notice early on in that fight, he only, he was really only throwing jabs and straights to the body. Like he did a low jab to the body at an angle, still keeping his hands low, but kind of backing up, baiting Strickland. And then Strickland basically walks right into a, a check hook that sends him, sends him to the shadow realm. Not really taking into account, like, Hey man, like you you know he's touching you. He's touching you with his lead side so he can set that up, right? You know, the one punch that literally everybody in the world knows him for, right? Strickland, what are you doing? You're walking, oh crap, there he goes. So that was pretty much the name of the game for that fight. Now, an easy fight is definitely not gonna be as easy as that. However, because of like you mentioned before, because of the way he moves and how he escapes after certain strikes and how he like uses his defense and evasive movement. There is a strong possibility that the exact same thing can happen again if he gets a, even a little bit lazy with Pereira because Pereira has enough kickboxing knowledge and experience to actually have a layered offense and defense compared to other people in that weight class. Because let's be just to be blunt and not to not to really shit on a lot of MMA strikers because MMA striking has improved as much as 
I have a completely different Xander. I'm kind of like, I'm kind of like Zach as far as like my standard for striking. I'm thinking like, you know, specifically Muay Thai. I'm thinking like stadium Muay Thai, K1, glory, all that. That's my standard for striking. But MMA striking has seen is improved leaps and bounds since even when I started doing Muay Thai. And even now though, you know, if you aren't able to have a layered offense, somebody like Izzy who can just basically coast for most of the fight and win rounds and knows how to win rounds just enough to really get just to really coast, you know, win an easy decision, not really take a whole lot of damage and make the fight pretty boring. Somebody like Pereira with layered offense, even if he doesn't represent a grappling threat, which would also help, but I don't see a whole lot of strong grapplers that can really give Izzy enough problems with good MMA grappling to really take him down to the ground right now and that weight class specifically. You know, so right now, I think if anybody's going to really take him out, it's Alex Pereira. I don't know if you guys have noticed also, but if you look at Alex Pereira, even though he's tall and lanky and he's only a middleweight, he has massive fists. So I can understand why he's like in kickboxing, a multiple weight champion, because he's probably hitting people with like Brock Lesnar fists too. So I think that's something that opponents don't recognize until it's too late. And they're like, oh, when they get hit, this is different. <laughs> so for those who don't know, for professional kickboxing, usually most international regulations give you glove sizes based on weight classes that are usually the same as boxing. So at my weight classes, I would fight at with eight ounce gloves, a little bit higher, 10 ounce gloves. I think heavyweight, they can go up to 12 ounce gloves. So you got to keep in mind, this dude has been knocking people out, basically wearing 10 to 12 ounce gloves and knocking them out cold. They're not getting up. And now you gave him four ounce gloves in a division with people who pretty much don't really have the striking skills that he has. You know, there you go right there. <laughs> so I think if you're somebody who's used to dodging a punch by leaning back or moving in a way where you miss the punch by an inch, I think that fist size might still nick you now because it is just that much bigger and that might be enough to really hurt you if you love the southpaw project please support us and help us get paid for our labor by financially supporting us on patreon it'll help us supplement the cost of running this project the incredible time and energy we put into it seven days a week and you'll be giving us some breathing room not only to juggle southpaw with our day jobs but also to expand southpaw into other areas Show your Southpaw solidarity by supporting us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Speaking of Pereira, what did you think about his performance over Sean Strickland? I find it amusing because Strickland said, um, and he's right on this, he said if Pereira had a, had a normal physical stature that he wouldn't be world class. Right? And that might may be true, but Pereira does have super physical attributes. <laughs> And Strickland fought him like he fucking didn't, <laughs> even, even after addressing them prior. And that's my problem. I'm like, man, you you pointed that out and then fought him with your hands down. And you, you you tried to walk. I mean, like you went Johnny Walker 2.0 and just walked after him <laughs> in, the, in the first two minutes, man. What you fucking think was going to happen? Like, I get it. You're tough. You love to fight. All right. We, we, you say those things all the time. Right? It was clever the first time. It was sort of funny the third. Your inability to, to read a fucking room 
after the third and fourth time you say the same joke as if cameras aren't recording it. We've, we've all been there. We've all seen it. We've all heard it, right? Yes, fighters fight, but world-class fighters fight in a world-class manner. And it takes more than just toughness and a love of fighting. So, hey, I, I appreciate Sean Strickland's love of fighting, which is really more or less a love of violence, um, which is fucking weird and sociopathic, but that's a different discussion. But Perea has immense physical tools. He is very long. He can take a shot and he can give a shot. And to, to Sam, your point about like why Izzy is so hard to take down, when you have that kind of length and you dig your feet into that space between the cage panels and the mat, it gets hard to move someone from there. You don't have an angle. You can't continue to, to make up that distance and, and take the back or anything like that because you can't morph them through the cage. They're there and their stance is long and wide. People are getting better and better about using the cage to stay upright. And at 185 pounds, it seems like the wrestling is getting worse and worse for anyone that's not named Derek Brunson. And even his seems shittier and shittier. So, um, the the match to make is going to be Pereira versus Israel Adesanya. Um, I'd like to get some more uh, some more data, some more MMA data uh, on Pereira because like what Strickland did was just fucking silliness. I'm not going to name names, but there were a lot of MMA analysts, other MMA breakdown podcasts that said Strickland would outstrike Alex Pereira. So I think that's part of why the odds were favoring Strickland, even though we knew Strickland wasn't going to go for a takedown because people actually thought Strickland would outstrike him because of what Ron talked about. Those previous Adesanya fights, they kind of took the wrong message. Ron is saying, yeah, he looked like that, but he would be even more devastating with small gloves. Whereas a lot of people who fancy themselves as really good at understanding MMA, watch those fights, and they're like, oh, Pereira is overrated. I thought he beat Izzy twice, and he's just that much better than everybody. But looking at it now, he's not that good. He got lucky, right? And so they picked Strickland to outstrike him, and then we saw what we saw. But what what fucking Strickland fights are they watching to make that that <laughs> assessment? Because <laughs> you're, you're, you're not going to beat a world champion kickboxer with just a fucking day one walk-in jab. In no hand position. He was going to beat him with the Strickland shoulder roll. (laughs) That's all. (laughs) Christ, and if he kept walking at Perea like that, I wouldn't be surprised if if Perea blast fucking doubled him. Because he was crossing (laughs) his feet. He was walking straight forward. Jason, I was thinking that while I was watching the fight. I'm like, look at him. If Perea wanted to, even without good wrestling, he could probably just take him down. Just a basic day one football tackle. For sure. Just running through the hips. That's all. And the, you, you, and I say it all the time. If you want to call yourself a world-class fighter, you have to do world-class shit. Yes. Right? Exactly. The term layered fighting should be a staple in the vernacular of every coach from this point forward because you have multiple disciplines in mixed martial arts. That's the mixed component. So quit saying, oh, I'm a striker. I want to bang. No, then, then, then go do kickboxing or boxing and understand that you can use other tools to make the tools you would like to use even better. You can sharpen those tools based on the juxtaposition of of those skill sets. And you can add them to your repertoire and make what it is you want to do more available to you than just complaining about it. So Strickland, I, I, I would recommend you learn more than a jab and to rely on 
ego and anger as, as your like primary motivator to fight. Try getting really, really good at fighting because you have the toughness and you have the tools. Like he punches with good stiff stuff when he does it correctly, but to disrespect the sport technically um, does him a disservice and he fucking paid for it, didn't he? Yeah. And let me add to that as well, as far as just, especially my biggest frustration is with strikers and MMA, even the ones who I know come from good striking disciplines or good striking backgrounds, this mentality of just thinking that you can, if I'm going to make it to the world level, just, just by being super rudimentary and not adding anything to my game because I don't need to add anything else to my game because fuck you. That's basically the mentality a lot of these guys have. That's exactly it. Training with them for so long, being around them. They want to be the jack of all trades, but they want to be the jack of all trades, but they won't want to be the master of none because that's going to require them to tone down their ego a little bit. And Sean Strickland is the epitome of that, if, if I've seen it in anybody else. And so you got guys who... You know, come from striking backgrounds, thinking you're gonna they're gonna be world level. Yet I'm in the gym with them. I'm doing more jujitsu classes part time as a no strike white belt than they are, and they're the ones getting ready for an MMA fight. You know, they're well, they're coming in maybe doing a little bit of pad work here and there, mostly sparring because they literally said it on the fight. Yeah, Sean Strickland just loves to spar. He loves to spar, and I'm listening. I'm like, oh yeah, he's definitely that guy who just fucking comes in for sparring, wants to be a bully in sparring. You ask him to do a few sprints after practice, he's out. I know, I know, I know he's that type of person just by the way he acts, you know? No, I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know all, all his training habits, but he just, he saw, he fought so poorly, did Sean Strickland, that like even the alt right, alt white fan base of mixed martial arts were like, ah, he's not on our team. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he's not with us. That's how fucking bad he fought. It was that bad. Yeah. And it was it was it was comedic because it, he had his hands like chest high, and he was just like walking forward as if the the rules of fi- of violence and fighting and mixed martial arts didn't didn't apply to him. And like, yeah, man, I get it. Like, you hate cancel culture. Let's hear that story again. Let's talk. Uh, <laughs> it's like, hey, man, you didn't get canceled. You got abandoned <laughs> because. Oh my god. You are not the great white hope. You are the great white dope. You fucking embarrassed yourself. You embarrassed yourself. <laughs> oh my god. All right. Now let me do a poll. Pedro Munoz versus Sean O'Malley ended in a no contest. But who did you have winning before that ending? Ron? I had Pedro winning. Jason? I thought the leg kicks were the difference, right? Um hell did, did Pedro even land a punch to the head? Which tells you if you can beat Sean O'Malley with strictly leg kicks, he's He's got some improving to do. I think in that round and a half or nearly a round and a half, Munoz showed O'Malley is still very hittable. Now let's preview RDA versus Fiziev. I'm really excited for this one. And lately the fight nights have been better than the pay-per-views. Mostly because there are so many good fighters, especially from Europe and Central Asia coming up right now. There has just been better MMA from these fighters. And as Jason likes to put it, this is MMA done right. And we're seeing that not only with Fiziev, but also with the veteran RDA. Fiziev has won his last five. RDA, since dropping back down to 155, beat both Paul Felder and Renato Moicano, and is still proving he's still one of the best at 155. RDA is not someone who shoots blind takedowns or takedowns from too far away. He will engage with strikes, and his strikes 
lead him to his takedowns. And for Fazeev, I'm sure he's used to southpaw strikers, but how good is he defending against takedowns from southpaws? I think that combination of striking plus takedowns from southpaw as a new wrinkle. So how does RDA deal with the striking of Fazeev? And how does Fazeev deal with the double offensive threat of RDA? Well, I think the, the question is the answer, right? Um, for RDA, he has got to work his double offensive threat. And the more he can establish some wrestling to coincide with his striking, the more effective he's going to be about with keeping uh, Fazeev from just going like just that barns what is that that barnstorm approach of like mixing together punch punch kick punch punch kick those sequential combinations where he's throwing everything with full force it's fun to see but when there is a wrestling component then uh, and you have someone who can you know you saw what RDA did in, in the Felder fight and we can talk about short notice but it just shows how good RDA skill set is at dealing with someone who comes at him. Um, with really a one-dimensional approach. I guess one dimension doesn't really. It's a two-dimensional approach as opposed to a 3D approach in this thing. So, you know, you got to you got to meet the combination threat with a combination threat of your own, right? Or and it doesn't have to necessarily be wrestling and striking. It can be like sometimes you fight on the lead, rhythm changes, disruptions of of timing, working something. I mean, Volkanovski, everybody should be watching that as a masterclass fight study on how to get good at dealing with, it doesn't matter what your skill set is, the way he fights you throws you off balance. So for Fazeev, he's going to have to do something to break RDA's rhythm, to to mess up the timing, the rhythm, and keep RDA at least somewhat off balance. If he fails to do that, I, I wouldn't be surprised if this fight looks similar to RDA versus Felder. Ron, what are some things that Fazeev does that you've liked? So the things that uh the things that Fazeev does that I do like are also ironically the things that could actually leave him vulnerable against somebody with the layered weapons that RDA has, which is mainly his the way he structures his combinations, which is very like, you know, being able to train internationally, even fight internationally and witness how a lot of these Central Asian fighters fight. They love sequencing combos, and they do a very good job at it because a lot of these guys don't really, they don't really uh, pigeonhole themselves in only one striking art. A lot of these kickboxers are also doing boxing, Muay Thai. A lot of these Muay Thai fighters are probably doing boxing, uh, kickbo- just regular kickboxing fights as well. Even some of them grapple themselves just because they just want to do everything. And he's very good at throwing combinations and throwing them hard and heavy. Whereas a lot of MMA fighters, you know, a lot of the commentary might call them combinations, but like, you know, a looping hook, looping hook, looping hook, maybe like a light kick at the end of it. It's like, all right, it's not, I guess that's a combination, but there's more to it than just, I throw three wide punches, maybe, oh, wait, I got, I can throw a kick as well. Whereas Vazeev, everything, is he's looking for setups, he's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting, and then he wants to explode on you with a specific combination. Now, the downside to that is that Rafael Dos Santos can hold his own striking. And as a Muay Thai fighter, I say this with, like, he, Dos Santos has one of the best body kicks I've ever seen from a guy who's not necessarily a Muay Thai fighter. 
in MMA. Like his body kicks are like that's like almost perfect Muay Thai. The way he throws his body kicks. Are you talking about his left his left kick to the liver? Is that what you're talking about? Yes, his left body kick is a ama- I love his left body kick. That's why I love watching his fights. A lot of people ask me, they're like, "You're like a Muay Thai fighter, like, buddy." Like, I'm like, look, I'm like, just watch his left body kick. That's Muay Thai. That's good Muay Thai right there. You know, <laughs> a strong left kick to the body. If you watch stadium Muay Thai, there's a reason why a lot of these guys winning belts are southpaws because a left body kick, for some reason, similar to like a lead left hook if you're in a uh, orthodox or right-handed stance seems to be almost unblockable for a lot of guys. I still haven't figured out why when I figure it out, I'll be sure to let everybody on this podcast know because y'all deserve it. But you know, left body kicks are hard to deal with. And the problem with left body kicks too, depending on your stance is that that's where the liver is at. And even if somebody's not a better striker than you on paper, I guess, if somebody's got a good like lead side strike that is aimed near your liver or around that area, it doesn't have to, it doesn't take a whole lot for your night to get ruined fast. Now that probably won't happen this fight, but you combine the fact that Dos Anjos isn't afraid to strike and he has layers to be able to get it to the ground rather than just only being relying on the ground, he can get it there in a natural way without sacrificing without sacrificing his defense. That's going to give Zeev some issues, and he's going to have to figure out a way to be able to tee off those combinations while putting himself at risk in the grappling arena. This is a tough fight for RDA, but the odds have Zeev as the favorite, which is kind of surprising since RDA has more ways to win. With that said, Zeev also has a wrestling background. However, RDA normally has problems with bigger, taller fighters, especially wrestlers, whereas this will be someone his same size and someone who likes to mostly strike. This is also a five-round fight, which favors RDA, especially since this is Fazeev's first five-round main event. We saw how that changed things for Armand Sarukian. So Jason, what does RDA need to do to win and take advantage, especially of that five-round main event change? So with it being a five-round a five round main event, cardio is going to be key. And so part of that is going to be using the dual threats of striking and wrestling, adding cage pressure. And if you consider the decision-making RDA showed in the Felder fight, you talk about next-level shit. Um, people will always refer to, well, Sar- or, or Felder was piecing him up. That's true. But every time Felder pieced him up, he got taken down because the takedown was what was available to RDA. And if you think that you're just going to come at him with nothing but pressure, you better hope you catch him. Because if not, like, again, uh, RDA has good cardio. He can take a shot. And then like, he'll, he'll get to your hips when you overcommit to striking. And he'll take you down with relative ease. He's not always working super hard for those finishes of his takedowns. So I would, I would push the, the dual threats. Make sure your cage pressure is there. Make uh, make Fazeev work, hang heavy on those arms, good, strong head position when you get him against the cage, hand fighting, you know, make it dirty and ugly against the cage, especially when Fazeev's back's against it. And, you know, that's that's where I think this fight is going to be won. Ron, what does Fazeev need to do to beat RDA? And what does he need to change to go five rounds if need be? He needs to be patient. And I say that because the thing that... uh. I notice a lot, specifically, I'm familiar with Fazeev because he's actually, you know, 
he might still be in Thailand. I didn't do my research. I'm not sure where he's at. I know he was the coach, the striking coach at Tiger for a while. So I'm assuming he's probably still training in Thailand. And but he fights mostly like a, you know, I guess what we would call like a Dutch style kickboxer, heavy hands, usually finishing off with a kick of some sort. Usually three, maybe four punch combination finish with a kick, three to four punch combo finish with a kick. And a lot of the reason, if you watch international kickboxing, a lot of the reason that these fights aren't really five round fights like they are in, uh, you know, I guess traditional Muay Thai fights is because the big thing, everything scores equally in kickboxing fights. So everything is about, I just got to be more active. I got to go, 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 go. And I just got to rack up and I just got to overwhelm people. But when it comes to a five round fight, you have to kind of just pack your pace a little bit because even if you do get even if you do get going early on in the first couple of rounds, Rafael Dosanos is not a stranger to a five round fight. And again, he has multiple threats that he can use that even though Fazeev has wrestled, I think Dosanos is probably better at combining his striking with striking with his wrestling better than Fazeev as of now based on just what I've seen and what I know of Dos Anjos. And because most of Fazeev's fights have been, you know, other than maybe engaging in the clinch every now and then, which he does some good work in, he's not really, he ain't going to shoot for a takedown, I would assume. So I think he just has to be just a little bit more conservative. Not, you know, he's not like, he doesn't have to change his whole style or anything. He just has to be aware that, you know, there's more to worry about with uh, Rafael Dos Anjos because he is still he's still a world-class fighter even now and we've seen that in his last couple of fights like you just like yeah even though Paul Felder took the fight on the week notice you people don't do that to Paul Felder let's be real like <laughs> so you know this is going to be a tough fight for Fazeev so this will be a good and this will also be a good opportunity to show how he's going to, how he's evolved so far as a mixed martial artist not necessarily a striker who's doing mixed martial arts. It's like, all right, like, are you like, are you a well-rounded mixed martial artist now? How do you put up with this current threat in front of you? Who can bang with you and who can take you to the ground without really taxing themselves. And one thing I do want to mention, which may or may not be relevant for this fight, but when we saw Fiziev go the full three rounds with Bobby Green, we saw that he did slow down and he did start to get tired. And that is how, Bobby Green started to catch up and make the fight close. So that was only three rounds. Will that matter this time around? I don't know. Maybe from that fight, he's learned how to pace himself differently or he's changed some things up with his cardio. But he is also a massive man for the division. He is built like a truck. So that is a lot of size to carry around. I don't know how much weight he's cutting. He's not super tall, though. So these are all things to consider. Yeah, no, f- for sure. Cardio is going to be key. And one thing I will say is, uh, Fazeev will cross center line shoulder square from time to time with all his movement. Um, and he becomes very hittable, especially when he starts to get tired. And RDA has a great straight left. He's got a, and he's got a good right hook. So if you start keeping your shoulder square, no matter, like, even if you are the better striker, a mistake is a mistake. And if mistakes are born of fatigue, then, Look for RDA to start to capitalize, even in the striking component uh, in rounds uh, three, four, and five. All right. That's it for this episode. Ron, give us your handles online and your handle on the Southpaw Discord so people can find you. 
All right. Well, my handle on the Southpaw Discord is Jodeci Joestar. And uh, online, my user my username on Twitter is Grappler Ronnie, which is funny because I'm predominantly a Muay Thai fighter. And then my name should be Jodeci Joestar on there. I don't usually use my face as a profile picture. I just use anime profile pictures. I'm that guy. Yes, I know. But yeah, <laughs> that's pretty much my social media presence outside of Instagram, which I don't really use that often. All right. If you like what we do, sign up for the Patreon. We also have the Liberation Martial Arts Program if you want to train with us from wherever you are. You can also find that on our Patreon. You can find Southpaw merch at our store. You can find all pertinent links on the show notes. With all that said, thanks for listening. <laughs>